So I want to tell, I want to talk about my daughter, Charlotte, and I'm going to, I got a picture up here. She's really cute, isn't she? Princess Charlotte and the Pony. Uh, one of our relatives had that book uh, made for her. That's not a book you can go and find. So, um, but I want you to keep this in mind because I'm about to tell you something that's going to probably disturb you a little bit, but I want you to know you can laugh about it, but you're still going to be disturbed, but you can still laugh about it, all right? Because kids are kids, just so you know, all right? Um, so here's the deal. I'm not very good at teaching my daughter Bible, so it seems, okay? Which you may go, after this story, if this is your first time here, it's probably going to be your last time here, and I'm sorry. But here's the deal. So we have this Bible at home called the Jesus Storybook Bible. It has lots of pictures. It's like any other kid's Bible. No big deal. And last fall, I caught, remember this picture of Charlotte, okay? Keep this picture in mind. Last fall, uh, we were heading out to school one morning, and I saw her with her crayon drawing on her Bible, right? Now, there was this kind of like fundamental past side of me that was like, you can't do that. You know, what are you doing writing in the Bible? And there was another part of me that was like, this is kind of sweet. And so I said to Charlotte, I said, um, what are you drawing, baby? And she said, um, a witch. <laughs> and so um, I, there's a witch up there somewhere. And I said, oh, well, who else are you drawing? And she said, Jesus. And I thought, okay. So she gets it. Like, here's a witch and here's Jesus. We know how the story goes. Jesus talks to the witch. The witch converts and everybody's good. And I said, well, what, 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 what happened? And she said, um, the witch killed Jesus. And now I'm a little concerned. And so I say to her, I'm saying, oh, so like, um, does, does Jesus come back to life? Thinking, yes, of course. She gets it. And she goes, no, he's dead. <laughs> and so I thought to myself, okay, we got to get to school, chalk it up, you know, don't know what to do with that. And I just thought, uh, you know, she goes to a Baptist school, no, no telling what she's getting there, right? I'm joking if you're Baptist. <laughs> because I confronted, I confronted Judy. I said, Judy, what are, you ta- what are you teaching? Are you teaching about witches? Are you talking about salt? Like, what's going on up there? And so like, I'm like, it just had to be the Baptist. I guess that's it. All right, now, fast forward, and now from then, and rewind three weeks ago, um, Charlotte's been having a hard time sleeping, like any kid has a hard time sleeping. And um, she's having like little nightmares, and she'll dream of like, like a monster with three eyes or something like that. And even when I'll go to her room at night, I'll, you know, like, She'll be like, there's a monster in the mirror. And I'll be like, get out of here, monster. And she'll say, and he didn't say he was sorry. Say you're sorry to Charlotte, you know? And like, there's another mirror. It's like, get out of here, monster. Say you're sorry. Don't let me come. You know what I mean? Like, we do those kind of things. And I'm trying to show her like, hey, these monsters aren't going to get you. And so one night she wakes up, has a really rough night sleeping. And, um, and so we're talking, we're all getting ready and we're up, we had this kind of big walk-in closet. And so Suzanne's getting ready and Charlotte has her own little area. And I was like, baby, what happened last night? And she said, I had a bad dream. I said, oh, like, was it the monster? And she said, no, it was Jesus. And I was like, here we go again, man. Like, what is she learning at this Baptist school? So anyway, like, she goes, no, it's a monster. And I mean, she goes, it's Jesus. And I said, well, baby, you don't have to be scared of Jesus. Like, he, he loves you. You know, he really, he's really sweet. And she said, well, he had a sword. And I thought, a sword? 
Like, he said, put away your swords. Like, what are you, who are you thinking of? Like, what are you reading Revelation when I'm not watching, you know? And then she said, and he had gray hair. And I thought, this is Gandalf. Like, this isn't, this isn't Jesus. Like, you know, this is the gray, you know, wizard. And, and then I, I just, I got low and I was like, listen, sweetheart, I want you to know something, all right? Jesus loves you and you don't have to be scared of him. He's not going to hurt you, okay? And, uh, and then she looked at me and she looked up. She said, tonight, I'm going to kill him. And I just thought, man, if that's not the biggest pastor fail, I don't know what else is. You know, like, my daughter is now set out tonight when she goes to bed to kill Jesus. Man. And so here's, here's why I tell you the story. No matter how far down the scale you have gone, I am 100 yards below you in parenting. All right? Um, not Suzanne. This is on me. I'm the pastor here. This is on me. Uh, and, and so I say all that to say, if there's ever a story we need to get right, it's this one, isn't it? Like it's the story of Jesus. It's the story of his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his appearance. Like if there's ever a story that's of first importance for us that we're going to get it right, it's this one. And I think that a lot of the problems we have today is because we don't get this story right and we think we should be able to get the story right. Like, none of us in here is going to bed thinking, if Jesus shows up, I'm going to kill him. Nobody's saying that. And yet, there's a way that we live that we tend to nullify the resurrection of Jesus. That we have things we say, and then we have a life we live, and it's very incongruent. And so this morning, I want us to look at a passage that Paul says this is of first importance of first importance, that we get this story right, that we really understand what's being talked about here. And I want us to think about just a few things briefly. I want us to think about, um, first, what we forget. I want us to think about how we tend to forget it. And then I want us to talk about, like, why we must remember. So what we forget, how we forget it, why we must remember because what we'll find when we get to the end of this is that we are a people meant to pursue justice in this world, to not just watch the things that are happening around us and go, well, the world's, you know, going to hell in a handbasket, and I'm just waiting for a moment to, you know, pop on out of here. But there is a reality, a life that we, if you call yourself a Christian, a follower of Jesus, that we're meant to be engaging with, and I think Paul hits the nail on the head. So let's just start by kind of going through some of the verses and see what we find along the way. Let's start in verse 1. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, of which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And I'm, I'm using, I'll be using NIV, and this is from ESV, and even the message later on. Now, there's several words here, and I have them. Um, you, you kind of tell, I have them in bold, that there's several verbs that Paul is laying out. The first thing he says is, I would remind you, I would remind you that there's something about engaging your mind. The Greek word would be gnosis, like to know. There's something, but it's even more than to know. It's like something that's gone from here and it's kind of dropped down about 18 inches to your heart. 
that I remind you of the thing that you know, but you've obviously forgotten, but let's, I want to remind you of it. And then next he says, I want to remind you of what I preached. And the word for this is euangelizo. It's where we get our word euangelion, which is the gospel. But euangelizo is like an active, engaging word. You gospel something. You gospel someone. The way we've talked about it before is that to you and Galizo isn't just to stand up here and give a message. To you and Galizo is to go and break down the fourth wall. So many times we tend to create theater on a Sunday, and it's a play, and we all kind of clap our hands and then go home. But there's actually supposed to be an engagement that if this doesn't actually penetrate your heart, then whatever's happening up here isn't working. And if whatever conversations you're having with others, if it's not engaging your heart and penetrating, then there's something off. And not necessarily with you. It has more to do with the person who is preaching the gospel, who is engaging and breaking the fourth wall. So he goes, I'd remind you of what I engaged and broke down in that fourth wall with you in which you received. And this word receive is to receive something intimately and to bind yourself with that, to say, I'm joining with this. So I'd remind you of what I preached to you, of which you received, and now in which you stand. And this idea of stand is a, um, is a present active um, verb. And what it's saying is that you are standing, you are being present and being conscious of where you are. That whenever the gospel penetrates our life, there should be a presence of where we are. That we are conscious of the work of Christ happening in our lives. So I'd remind you of what I preached, of what you received, and what you stand, and I love this, of being saved, sozo. The word sozo isn't about being saved to be snatched out of here one day. The word sozo is that you're being made whole. You're being made whole. That this gospel, this good news, when it truly penetrates and breaks the fourth wall, it, it changes things. Your life gets better, gets more whole. And I don't mean better like you start making more money. That may, I don't know, like maybe you're good at business, maybe you're not. God doesn't have anything to do with that. But it's more like you're becoming a more holistic person, a more conscious person of yourself in this world and how to engage it. And then lastly, he says, and all this will be true if you hold fast, that to not let go no matter what. It's a lot in just two verses. He just lays it out for us. That there's all these things. And then he says, if we move on to verse 3, for what I received, I passed on to you of first importance, of first importance. Keep this in mind. And he says three things, four things, that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, that he was raised, and that he appeared. He died for our sins, he was buried, he was raised, and he appeared. Now, the first one, I think a lot of us probably get, or maybe not, so let me explain it briefly. Died for our sins in that the worst of you is now, there's room for God for the worst of you because Jesus took on the worst the world had to give. Like on the cross, Jesus took all the hate, all the animosity, and what we'll find later, all the powers and authorities and rulers, all those evil forces he took on the cross which we are a part of, and in this way gave us now this reality that no matter what you throw my way, I will now love. This is why he breathes his last breath saying, I forgive. 
I love, come be with. I encourage you to um, go check out uh, Jamin's message on Good Friday, beautifully articulated, what the cross really represents. That he died for our sins. It's not just some kind of transaction. It is the sense of that you can bring the worst of you, and there's always room for God because the face of God has been seen in Jesus. And God is a good and loving and benevolent God. So he says that he died for our sins, that he was buried. This is important because if Jesus is a man of sorrows, if God came down to experience all that this world had to throw his way, then God had to experience the humiliation of being buried six feet under or put into a tomb. That he had to be dead dead, not just kind of dead, but he had to go through the full experience of what humans go through. And then it says that he was raised, that he conquered the thing that we're all subjected to, that the death tolls that we see in Sri Lanka and that we see in our own country, that you know personally from a loved one that has passed, that's the thing that Jesus has conquered, that ultimately death does not get the last word that Jesus does because he has been raised from the dead. And then it says that he appeared, that he appeared to people, that it was real. He didn't just like, like wake up and like skirt out. He then made himself seen. He appeared to all these people. In the Gospels, we see time and again how the first people to see Jesus when he appeared were women, which means means women became the apostles to the apostles. Like women were the first ones to be given honor in this new world of what it could look like. That Jesus is immediately taking all the things that were off in this world that were wrong and broken, that were subjected to decay, and now brings life. That nothing else except Jesus gets the last word. And Paul says, this is of first importance. Now listen to me when I say this. This is of first importance. Not our doctrinal stances of who's in or who's out. Not our theological distinctives of what we think the Bible says or doesn't say to be against a person. Not our ideologies of how church should operate. Not even our sociological preferences of who we'd rather worship with or not. These are not the things of first importance. Your personal take on the Bible is not that important compared to the resurrection of Jesus, that this is of first importance. And yet this tends to be not of first importance, and everything else is of first importance besides this, that the thing that we all come around together on is of first importance, that Christ died, that Christ was buried, that Christ ascended or was raised, and that he appeared. And yet we get so caught up on the other things, which is, a, there's a, a, a fancy theological word called tertiary, which means secondary, everything secondary. I just wonder what the world would think of us if all the other things truly were secondary. I think the world is good with Christians saying that we have a God who was raised from the dead. Like, I think the thing they're not good with is how we act as people who say that God was raised from the dead. 
I don't think they have as big a problem with that. They're more like, yeah, cool, good for you. Matter of fact, that actually sounds like it could work. Maybe, except I know you. <laughs> like, we're the, we're the thing that gets in the way because this is of not of first importance. And so Paul is saying, this is a really, really big deal, that the God that we now know loves us in our worst because Jesus died for us and took on the worst. And that the king rose from the dead and now everything one day that is sad will be untrue. If you're a Lord of the Rings fan, you know how it ends. If you don't by now, where have you been? And we know that at the end, as Frodo and Samwise feel like that they're just about to die, they've thrown the ring into Mordor, and they're laying on this rock, and then the eagles come, and because they're passing out, they're taking them. And when they wake up, there's this great little interaction between Samwise and Gandalf. And Samwise says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? And Gandalf replies, a great shadow has departed. And then he laughed, and the sound was like music or like water in a parched land. Friends, this is what we have access to if we believe this is true, but only if we make this of first importance, that a great shadow has lifted. It doesn't seem that way, and our experiences tell us something different, but if this is true, what we're reading, that ultimately the great shadow does not get the last word and that the sad things become untrue. I love how um, one theologian, Megan McKenna, it's in your bulletin, how she said it. The resurrection is not a single event, but a loosening of God's power and light into the earth and history that continues to alter all things infusing them with the grace and power of God's own holiness. It is though a door was opened, and what poured out will never be stopped, and that door cannot be closed. Come on now. That God's power has loosened into this world. That a door has been flung wide open, and that door cannot be shut. Friends, if Christ is your Lord, and this is the first importance, this is your truth. This is it. This is the primary thing. This is the thing that if we give it room, creates so much hope. Because what it will tell us is that this means everything has hope. Like, the shame narrative you live with doesn't get the last word, because if this is true, you have hope. That if this is true, that means your life is not defined by your addictions or ultimately your worst choices, if this is true. If this is true, this means your marriage is not on its last leg, if this is true. If this is true, this means that those who abuse power don't get the last word, if this is true. And if this is true, this means the marginalized one day, regardless if we're willing to do it ourselves or not, will be brought in. If this is true. The question is, is it of first importance? Don't you want that? Like, don't you want a real understanding that God's power has been loosened here in this world? 
that a door's been flung wide open for all the light and beauty and the best that this world could one day be is ushering out. And you can only kind of cause a speed bump, but ultimately this is going down. The question is, will you actually help provide a clearer runway for it? Like to be a person who gets to engage this instead of making it harder for others that this door has been opened and yet we forget it and even tend to deny it. So let's talk about that. Look at verse 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Now let's just pause and consider the context of this happening, of this being written. We know it's in Corinth. We know that Corinth in the ancient world, as it was coming into the common era, was comparable to like a New York, like a New York City that it was, it was kind of where all the trade and commerce happened. It was a very active, very active city. All the, the people who were sailing from the Far East would come in, and it's like people would get the first wave of culture in many ways. Eventually, it'd make its way up to Athens, and then in Athens is where it'd be discussed and decided on whatever philosophies were true or not. But Corinth was this city where it's almost like anything goes. And at the top of Corinth, it was called the Acro-Corinth, was this statue of Aphrodite, the goddess of love and perverse sex. And this was the shadow cast over the city. This is why we see in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul is writing about what true love is. That people, we tend to get confused what true love is. That it must get to a greater place of God-like love. Otherwise, we stay in this Eros love that simply is consuming and looking past one another. This is a city that kind of any person who's trying to follow Jesus wakes up behind the eight ball because the city isn't some kind of simple area where everybody goes to church. This is a place where there's a lot of animosity. And he's speaking to a people that it's easy to forget, it's easy to forget the resurrection, the power of Christ when you see so much negativity. So many things that aren't working as opposed to that are. Um, studies show, we've talked about this before, that when, when the mind is trying to engage something, that negativity is like Velcro to the mind. That anytime you see something negative, all it takes is a second for it to stick. It just sticks immediately. Like some of you are still thinking on what's happened in Sri Lanka. Some of you are still thinking about um, the bad thing that happened this past week. Some of you are still thinking about how my daughter wants to kill Jesus. Like, you think of the negative things in life, right? And that positivity or goodness takes at least 15 seconds for the brain to attach to. That you must consider something for 15 seconds at a time. And the way they studied this is by timing how long people would stand in front of a piece of art in galleries. And that the average time was 15 seconds. That it takes the mind 15 seconds to engage beauty at least for that to have a shot at sticking. Otherwise, our brains are Teflon. We're wired to see only what doesn't work 
And we're also wired, it seems, to reject things that could work. And yet, that may be nature, but the nurture for us must be, what are we doing to engage what can work? And what's happening here is there's a people who are more taken with what's not working in culture as opposed to a resurrection of first importance and what could work in culture. And I think the same is true for us. Because ultimately, if things aren't working in culture and the world you're engaging in your personal life, you can't help but become a cynic. I noticed this in my life a few years ago. I love um, observational comedy. Like Jerry Seinfeld, John Mulaney, right? Like I'm really, I find those kind of things really funny. And the problem is I almost find those things like only those things funny. <laughs> like how life doesn't work. That's what I get caught up in. So much so, I used to watch Seinfeld at least twice a year, every season. No joke. Like, this is what I do with my spare time to engage beauty. <laughs> and I, I started realizing, like, one, I realized I am George Costanza, which really bothered me. And two, I realized I cannot not be George Costanza. And three, I was like, and nothing works. Like, life's going to hell in a handbasket, and let's just poke and make fun and be cynical. But Oscar Wilde, the famous writer of the 19th century, said, you know what a cynic is? A cynic is someone who knows the, the price of everything but the value of nothing. Like, we know the price of things around us. Yeah, that's that. Yeah, that's that. Yeah, that's that. But we don't see the value of things around us. And thus we see the steep decline to cynicism. Paul nails it here. He goes in verse 19. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Which is a true indictment of us as 21st century modern people. Like, if the only thing I'm living for is for my life to work out here and now, God, please bless me. God, please help me. God, please make this work out. If that's, like, what our prayers are, we are the most to be pitied. If all it is that it has to work now, but it doesn't work later, eventually we start this kind of bunker mentality. And Paul's realizing there's got to be a greater eschatological, down-the-road hope that you start re-engaging your desires and longings again, and you're willing to hope once more for something more than what is. He goes on in verse 33. If the dead are not raised, and he quotes from Isaiah, but also the Epicureans, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Then he says, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. If nothing else works, then let's eat, drink, and die. Which, probably nobody in this room is saying that at the moment, but we sure do live that way. Especially when life isn't working. When marriage isn't working. When raising a family isn't working. When finding a job that the career you want isn't working. We tend to be like, okay, deuces, I'm good. It's not working. Let me turn Seinfeld back on. And what's really interesting is, you know, Paul loved culture. He was a Hellenistic Jew, meaning he was Greek. He belonged in the Roman world, 
and he was Jewish, dual citizenship. And we'll go back to talking about Acts next week, and we're going to see a lot of ways that Paul's engaging this kind of uh, Hellenistic side more and more. But here's what I find interesting. He clearly loved culture and reading and the poets and the comedians that came before him. And we find, here's what we know, that we know that it's Isaiah 22, to eat, drink, tomorrow you die, and also the Picurians picked that up. But here's what's interesting. He says here at the end, bad company corrupts good character. He pulls that from a comedian named uh, Menander, who lived in the mid to late uh, 4th century BCE. He wrote over 100 comedies, was considered the most prolific comedian of his time. He even developed a new type of comedy for the Athenians. Like, and in Athens, where everything was about words and rhetoric and presence, I mean, this guy was king. And he wrote this comedy um, titled Theus. And Theus was a woman, a courtesan, a high-end escort, who, uh, when I say that, it was someone who was, like courtesans at this time, were very intelligent women, like high levels of like degrees and studies and they would just go along with the king, whoever the king was, and really provide banter. That was the main thing. And there's a story of this courtesan, this woman named Theus, and she was best mates with Alexander the Great. And she would kind of ride or die with Alex, right? Like they were kind of together. And so as, and I call him Alex. So as Alex, Alexander was kind of pushing through and conquering. He had a bone to pick with the Persians, of course. Everybody has a bone to pick with us Persians. So he has a bone to pick with the Persians because Xerxes had basically destroyed Athens. So he goes all the way into Persia to the capital and to the great palace of Xerxes and conquers it. And the story goes that all him and his generals and commanders are sitting around and drinking, having a great time. And Theus says... Let's burn this place down. And Alexander's like, let's burn this place down. And so they burn down the great palace of Xerxes. And this is in the comedy. The comedy is that Theus is so cynical that all she wants to do is see the world burn. That's how she gets off at the end of the day. And Paul is pulling from that here, saying, if you're not careful with what you associate with in life and what you let influence you more and become Velcro to you, you will find yourself a cynic who's just an anarchist. Burn it down. It doesn't work. And listen, you don't have to be tweeting that to like not be believing that. Because we live that, which is worse than tweeting that. Everybody's got a problem with somebody who uses Twitter as some kind of outrage culture when the real outrage is us not making this of first importance. I wonder if people would be less outraged if this was of first importance. That if we actually had something worth giving to the world around us instead of getting in the way of it. And what we find here that's so beautiful is that Paul is trying to call this out and saying, if all that is left for you truly is no future hope, then stop, give up. But that's not the story, because look at verse 34. 
from the message. It says, think straight, awaken to the holiness of life. No more playing fast and loose with resurrection facts. Ignorance of God is a luxury you can't afford in times like these. Aren't you embarrassed that you've let this kind of thing go on as long as you can? Like Paul's like, wake up. He's saying to us, church, wake up. Like, we actually have something to give and not trying to get somebody to convert in a weird way, but just living with such hope outside of this space that the world goes, huh, I didn't expect a Christian to interact that way. What is it about you? And you're like, uh, it's this whole thing called a first importance. Like the other stuff's really secondary. I mean, it's important to me, but it doesn't have to be a big deal to you. But this is a first importance. We find in verse 24, because he's saying you must remember. Now, here's what happens this last part. It's not just that we tend to forget this and how we forget it. It's why we must remember. And what we must remember, and Paul goes through this whole rhetoric for, from like verses um, 17 down to 24 of like, listen, if, if you, like if you say that Christ is risen, but you don't live that way, then there's nothing about your life that's worthwhile. You might as well be someone that says that Christ isn't risen and live however you want. He goes, but if Christ is risen, and this is why this is, this is so important for us to get, if Christ is risen, that means it's worth pursuing the justice this world is longing for. Look at verse 24. I'll read through 27 and kind of skip around. It says, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom of God to the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now, I know this sounds kind of violent, but just bear with me for a second. First, let me kind of explain it here. He's saying Jesus has resurrected. Now, Jesus ascended, and we live between these two advents. There's the advent when Jesus first showed up as a baby, and there'll be a second advent when Jesus will return as the risen king. Between that space, we live with this hope. Because one day when he returns, here's what he does. It first says that he will remove or will destroy all dominions. I'm just going to try to give you the not the word in Greek itself, but kind of what it's trying to get across, like it's rulers, and these dominions aren't just rulers, these are people who are instigators of injustice. That one day when Jesus returns, he will destroy all rulers and people who tried to bring injustice. And then he says that when he returns, all authorities, meaning the, the word in Greek is like it says superhumans. Like the closest thing you could get to is like a dictator. Like people who are controlling forces that bring about injustice. And then he says all powers. And in the word behind this, this idea of powers is violence, those who bring violence. That he will destroy all powers, all systems of violence in this world. And then he says that he will put his enemies under his feet. And the word for enemies is our haters. Like, he is going to put all the haters under his feet. And I don't, I don't mean like Taylor Swift haters, you know what I'm saying? Like, maybe they'll be put under his feet too. I don't know. Maybe Taylor Swift will be. I don't know. Anyway, so 
Get off track for a second. So the point is that he's going to bring all those who bring hatred under his feet. Now, to you, you may sit here and go, oh, that's kind of harsh. It's kind of violent. Let me tell you something. If you were, and we know this in our country, if you were a person who was subjected to unjust circumstances and systemic injustice for hundreds of years, if you were a person, a person of color in this country where life hasn't worked for you, you better believe that this is good news. Throughout space and time, starting with the Exodus, through the exiles, and up to Jesus, it is good news when bad people are taken out of power. And it is bad news when bad people get that power. And he is saying one day, those who have the power that are making this so bad, they will be removed. And he's saying, you have a hope now to work for. And this is why N.T. Wright says, if it is true that God is going to transform this present world and renew our whole selves, bodies included, then what we do in the present time with our bodies and with our world matters. Friends, Easter is about building the world to come by engaging the world that is with hope. Easter is about interacting with the reality that God's power has been loosed, that the door has been flung wide open, and that we can start reimagining things differently if we want. So the question will be this, will we seek to remember? Will we be passive and forget? Will we let ourselves engage for at least 15 seconds with beauty? Will we simply let the things of this world become Velcro to us and start defining a narrative that we find ourselves becoming cynical? This is the message of first importance, that our cynicism doesn't have to reign because Christ is alive. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you have risen and you have risen indeed. We thank you that because you're alive, that means we get to have hope, a hope that isn't buried by all the negativity, all the ugliness, all the injustice in this world, but a hope that rises up and shatters those things and puts all things under your feet. And so now we get to be a people who engage with such intentionality for the world that could be and the world that is. And as we come to your table, we pray that we be reminded of how that you've come to us when we couldn't get to you. And that beauty changes everything. Amen.